This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It is Friday, November 17th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Mike in for Dave Brown. Let's hit those horns and go. Feeling very aggressive on a Friday morning. I'm pointing at the camera and at the audience. Coming up on the show today, it's weekly news panel time. Michelle McQuig, Elizabeth Moeller, and myself explore some of the top headlines of the week, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's attendance at the APEC summit in San Francisco. We explore the legacy of the Trudeau government on the international stage. Ontario announced a number of changes to its labor laws this week, and we'll consider some of the advantages and disadvantages of these changes. And the Canadian Federation of Independent Business is requesting the government address concerns over the dominance of e-commerce giants. We'll explore the state of competition in Canada for small businesses. All that and more to come, but first we start with the top news stories of the day. Beginning with the legal front, Canada's ban on single-use plastics has been overturned in court. Mia Rapson has the details. The federal court says it is not reasonable for the government to designate all plastic manufactured items as toxic because they can't uniformly be described as harmful. The case was brought by the Responsible Plastic Use Coalition and three chemical companies that make plastics. The cabinet order designating plastic items as toxic was needed before the government could move to regulate their use, including banning them. With that order quashed, the existing ban on the manufacture and import of six single-use items like straws and grocery bags is in doubt. The federal government is considering an appeal. Mia Rabson, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. And that story will also be the subject of today's daily poll in a few minutes. But we continue on with news stories as global measles cases, measles cases are on the rise. Here's reporter Andy Field with more. The CDC and World Health Organization reporting that global measles cases jumped 18% during the pandemic and that measles deaths rose nearly 50% in that same time. The number's far better in the U.S. because of widespread vaccinations, but growing numbers of parents have skipped those shots and unvaccinated travelers created more than 1,000 new measles cases in the U.S. in 2019. The situation in Gaza is continuing to deteriorate. Charles de Ledesma has the latest. Communication systems in the Gaza Strip were down for a second day, with no fuel to power the internet and phone networks, causing aid agencies to halt cross-border deliveries of humanitarian supplies, even as they warn people may soon face starvation. The World Food Programme says nearly all of Gaza's 2.3 million people need food. Gaza receiving only 10% of its needed food supplies daily, and dehydration and malnutrition are growing. Aber Atifa a Mideast regional spokeswoman for the programme, says people are facing the immediate possibility of starvation, adding, with few trucks entering Gaza and no fuel to distribute the food, there's no way to meet the current hunger needs. The existing food systems in Gaza are basically collapsing. I'm Charles de la Desma. 
Halifax is welcoming delegates today for the city's annual forum on global security. Karen Rebo has the primer. Forum President Peter Van Prague said in a news release yesterday that he deliberately chose to keep the focus of the event on Ukraine and not the war in the Gaza Strip because he said switching the theme would have played into the agenda of non-democratic nations. He says Russian President Vladimir Putin is now working to shift the world's democracy's attention and their generous support for Ukraine to other theaters. He says the world's democracies must come together to stop this multi-front attack. And staying in the world of global security, Canada's ambassador to Haiti hopes that the world starts moving quicker to restore order to the country ravaged by gang warfare. Andre Francois Giroux was appointed to the post in September shortly before a UN force was sent to stabilize the Caribbean nation. And when it comes to Haiti, nothing is moving fast enough. The needs are critical. You've got three crises in parallel here, humanitarian, safety, and political. And then lastly, the, there are disturbing allegations being levied against rapper Sean Diddy Combs in a lawsuit by his former partner, Cassandra Cassie Ventura. Reporter Lionel Moyes has the latest. Ventura claims Combs pushed her into a car, kicked her in the face multiple times, and in 2012, she claims Combs got so angry that she was dating rapper Kid Cudi that he threatened to blow up the rapper's car. Around that time, the lawsuit claims Kid Cudi's car exploded in his driveway. His lawyer calls the claims offensive and outrageous, adding, for the past six months, Mr. Combs has been subjected to Miss Ventura's persistent demand of $30 million. And that's it for the top news stories of the day. It's now time for the daily polls. Yesterday, I asked you, how conscious are you about limiting food waste when you're cooking and eating? 84% of you weighed in and said very concerned and very conscious. 16% said somewhat and 0% said not at all. Well, that's good too to know that at least everyone's somewhat conscious about food waste when you're cooking and eating. So as I mentioned at the top of the news today, that it's going to be the subject of today's poll is the overturning of the ban on single-use plastics. So I want to ask you, a federal court has overturned that ban? If single-use plastics are available for you in stores or restaurants, will you use them? Yes or no. I want to bring in Elizabeth Moeller and Laura Bain on this daily poll to get their perspective. Elizabeth, hello. Welcome in. I will start with you on this. If single-use plastics are available in restaurants or stores, are you going to start using them again? I'm going to say yes, but there's a reason. And that reason, as, as many people know, is accessibility. So beyond just straws, a lot of single-use plastics are used to package uh, pre-made food, whether it be a, a vegetable tray or fruit tray, or perhaps uh, a meal that you pick up at the deli. And for accessibility reasons, a lot of the time that's easier for folks with, with a wide variety of disabilities. Um, I would certainly try to be cognizant and where there are other options, like perhaps like a a paper takeout container, use that or bring my own bags. But the reality is it isn't just a convenience, it's an access issue for me. And I would also say that 
you know, bringing sometimes your own containers or your own cups is a little bit trickier when you're you're not driving and you're sort of walking with it with a backpack. Um, certainly doable, but sort of lugging that extra weight around. You know, I know there are some stores. There's one in London, Ontario, where nothing is packaged at all. There's no plastic packaging. Every single thing on the shelf is just there, and you bring your own containers um, and you pop stuff in. But the reality isn't that easy for us um, who who perhaps don't drive. So I would say yes, but being conscious, I, I, I guess I would say a conscious consumer and figuring out where I can go, where perhaps those containers are more environmentally friendly. A very interesting take, Elizabeth. Uh, Laura, what about you? Would you start using single-use plastics again if they become available in your grocery stores? I think those were such great points that Elizabeth made about the accessibility. And I certainly would like to see, I know when we sort of have the ban on straws, we know there are, it's an access issue for some people. And so I'd want to see those things available when people need them. For myself, I'm going to say not when I can avoid it. Um, you know, if I go out and maybe I'm at a food court and I get some food, you know, realistically, if it's a plastic knife and fork, that's what I'm going to use. I'd rather have a compostable option and that is probably only going to happen with something like legislation. Um, you know, I could make an individual decision to carry a knife and fork around with me, I guess, but that's where kind of the burden is placed on the individual. Where I'm guilty is uh, sometimes I'm out and I'll get a water bottle. You know, I don't always have my water bottle with me. And yeah, um, you know, echo that maybe sometimes it's harder when you don't have a vehicle and everything that you have with you for the day is in your purse or backpack. Um, I do try if I end up buying a bottle of water to uh, reuse it for several days days at least. So uh, that's a bit of a rambly answer, I guess I'll say. <laughs> Not when I can help it, but yeah. uh, sometimes, you know, they are a convenience item and we do uh, do need to use them when they're what's available. Well, so I view it, <clears throat> excuse me, I view it as this, the fact that when this ban kind of got put in place, we saw the end of plastic straws, those kind of uh, single-use plastic straws, those those uh, very flimsy plastic bags, things like that. Whereas, as you you both described, okay, well, like all those plastic water bottles, I, I don't view that in the same context. The same thing with like those fruit and veggie trays, because you still can get those in the stores. I, I look at it more as those very basic, very disposable, almost uh, plastic uh, items that you can't really reuse, even if you, you try. Like, so for me, it's like, okay, if, Let's say there's an option between, you know, the cardboard straw or the paper straw and a, a plastic straw again. I'm I'm not going to go back and try to use that plastic straw. I, I don't like the paper straw. I still think that um, the change should be done, that we just replace how the lids are on these containers and just make them actual drinkable and not having them rely on, on straws or things like that. But, like, I've already adjusted to that post, like, single-use plastic uh, kind of mentality. So I, I carry reusable grocery bags when I do go to the grocery store, things like that, that I don't rely on those things that we have moved away from. So for me, I will say no, but like I understand there is still that um, that access issue as, as you described, Elizabeth, and that we have to be conscious and mindful of that. But like for, for instance, a straw, if it's something that you want a uh, a, a straw that's going to be uh, feasible and, and beneficial for you, is it really that much of a burden to have one on you that, that's yours that you can have, whether it's a metal one or something that's spe specifically designed for you? Do you what do you think on that, Elizabeth? 
Yeah, I think those are really interesting points. And for sure, like I have some bamboo straws in my drawer right now and they're pretty easy to, to, to pack. Um, it's interesting you mentioned plastic bags because when we had the single-use plastic bags in, in more um, availability, I would use those no frills bags for garbage bags. And I would lit like literally get extras at the store because they were such good garbage bags. So it's funny that sometimes things we think of as single use, um, you know, to your point, I, I think a lot of us find a second use for perhaps not with the straw, but certainly with, uh, you know, here in Ontario, we have a lot of no frills stores, those yellow bags made great garbage bags. So I think it's also, um, I guess my point is trying to be creative. And I think Laura touched on this too. If you are using a single use plastic, like, is there a way that you can use it again? Of course, keeping in mind hygiene and, and safety, um, you know, as, as sort of front, front thinking when you're doing that. Absolutely. Laura, I'll give you last word on this topic. Yeah, um, you know, we've had the plastic bag ban here in Nova Scotia for several years. And at first, people thought they couldn't adjust their behavior, but we have. And now it's just part of our routine to bring uh, plastic or bring reusable bags with us when we go. Like Elizabeth, I am now buying additional plastic bags in a box to use for my garbage bin. So I'm not sure if that's really helpful. As far as the plastic straws go, I really don't, I really couldn't speak to that. I'd want to hear from individuals like what their challenges are with that in terms of bringing their own straws and cleaning them and things like that. As I say, I think I'll stick to, I, I would like it if maybe they were available, but kind of on a request basis. Fair enough. Okay, thank you both for chiming in. Uh, Laura, we'll check in with both of you later on in the show, Elizabeth mm -hmm. in the next segment, Laura a bit later in the show. But for now, I want to hear from you at home. If single-use plastics become available for you in stores and restaurants, are you going to use them? Yes or no? Be sure to vote on the poll on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. On Twitter or X at Accessible Media. Coming up after the break, though, we assemble the Now News panel and we discuss the legacy of the Trudeau government on the international stage. Elizabeth Moeller and Michelle McQuig will help dissect that topic with myself. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. It's Friday, so that means it's time to assemble the weekly news panel. Let's welcome in today's panelists, Elizabeth Moeller and Michelle McQuig. Hello, Elizabeth. Thank you for staying on and pinch hitting for Juita Gupta today. You're welcome. Happy to be here. And Michelle, hello. How are you doing today? Hello. So much fun to be here with two new people today. Yay. <laughs> okay. Welcome. Yeah, so let's dive right into this. So we start the panel on the international front. Uh, the, this week, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau attended the APEC Summit in San Francisco. There were a number of meetings planned with different leaders and dignitaries, and Karen Rebo highlighted his busy schedule. 
Trudeau kicked off his California visit with a pre-summit meeting with his friend and fellow Liberal lawmaker, Governor Gavin Newsom. He said they had lots to talk about. On climate, on growing our economy, on increasing trade, on uh, helping our citizens with affordability. Today, Trudeau will sit down for one-on-one -on -one meetings with a coterie of fellow Pacific Rim leaders in between high-level APEC plenary sessions. U.S. President Joe Biden rattled off a list of the challenges during the reception he hosted last night. Those include Include how to reinforce and streamline modern-day supply chains while finding workable solutions to the climate crisis. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. And with Trudeau attending the summit, Canada's place on the global stage has been tested over the last few years with the tensions between China and India and even to an extension of this week with Canada's response to Israel and the Gaza conflict. But also here at home, new polling data suggests Canadians are ready for a change in leadership. And Karen Rebo has the details on this poll. Trudeau's Liberals have just passed the eighth anniversary of their first election win in 2015. But a Leger poll of over 1,600 Canadians done last weekend for the Canadian press suggests widespread dissatisfaction with the Liberal government on everything from housing affordability and inflation to health care, government spending and climate change. While affordability, housing and public debt are higher on the reasons people want Trudeau to go, one in five people surveyed said they want him to resign simply because they're just tired of him. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. So there's a lot to unpack here, and, and Canada's had numerous challenges developing strong relationships in the Asian uh, region, especially with trade partners. So, Michelle, I'll start with you on this. How do you see Canada's position within that region? Yeah, this is not an area where Canada has historically had a ton of influence. From what I understand, I, I'm going to defer to those who are much more steeped in this kind of history than I am. But definitely, it's been an area where this government has wanted to put some focus and has had some struggles. Uh, you might remember Trudeau's initial trip to India back in, I want to say, 2018 or 19, somewhere around there, the one that became a bit of a global laughing stock, mm -hmm. if that helps narrow it down. Um, so that it, it I wouldn't want to say it stemmed from that or it started there. There are so many complexities that I don't feel as well versed on, but there's been trouble with Canada's perception and Trudeau's perception specifically in that region dating back for sure to then, if not sooner. Lately, now we've seen extreme strain on Canada's relationships with both China and India, and that is not, uh, <laughs> that's a, that poses big challenges for that region because those are, of course, the two biggest economies, not only a region, but some of the biggest in the world. And I think as a result, or again, I, I hesitate to correlate too much with any mm. of this stuff. So I don't want to say as a result. Let's, let's have that caveat stand for, for this whole section, <laughs> anything I say here. But um, the fact is that this is an area where Canada does not currently have a great deal of influence. Um, my understanding is, is historically not so. No one, for instance, looks to Canada to be the peacemaker in the Middle East. That that dubious distinction falls to the United States generally. But uh, for sure, this is an area where Canada has wanted to expand its influence. They rolled out this big Asia Pacific Asia excuse me Asia Pacific strategy last year. Um, that was all aimed at mitigating China's influence and uh, early days to see how that's going. But there's also been efforts to try and put together like an Indo-Pacific strategy that hasn't come together. Uh, there are a lot of question marks about Canada's place in the global uh, on the global stage at, from the UN, where we have failed to you know land some Security Council positions that we vied for. 
there's questions swirling for sure as to whether Canada is the global player it could be. Well, and and you laid out some really great points there, and and obviously the the distinction needs to be made. The situation with the China's tension with uh, uh, with Canada, and then Canada's uh, issues with India are completely separate and have are oh, yes. are there for very different reasons. That said, I would also uh, kind of reflect the point that you know, at least domestically on the political front and the federal front. You know, the parties seem pretty aligned with the response that uh, the Liberal government has had when it comes to dealing with foreign uh, interference or at least pushing, if not what the Liberal response has been, pushing for more. And then the same thing with uh, Canada's response to, to India in, in the wake of the, uh, the, the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil. So I, I think there's, even if there was, a, a, opposed to... Trudeau and the Liberals uh, kind of maintaining that hold in that file, it, it would probably be at least along similar lines, if not even uh, more harsh lines of and reaction to both China and India in those cases. Elizabeth, I want to uh, give you the opportunity to weigh in here. What do you view as Canada's place within this region and the strength that they have in the region? Yeah, I think it's one that we really need to continue to bolster. I mean, if we just think for a moment about China in terms of what we get from China trade-wise, so our, our microchips for our computers, that's a huge thing. But also uh, as, as an importer, uh, the things that, that you know, China gets from us, so, uh, you know, of oil, uh, alpha, alpha, um, you know, coal, um, you know, gasoline, uh, grain, all of those things are really key, right? It's a, it's a huge sort of um, trade opportunity. So we, we can't afford to lose that opportunity. Um, so we want to continue to think about ways that we can, can continue to build those relationships, perhaps through agreements um, that, that both Canada and China uphold. But, you know, when I think about, you know, perhaps in the next 20 years, like China's economy is going to really continue to grow. Um, so it would be, I think, a missed opportunity if if we, you know, didn't continue to leverage those relationships um, because of all of the things that we do export and all of the things that we get from China that are that you know we require here um, to sustain our economy. And uh, that's a very good point too. Oh, Michelle, you wanted to jump in there? Yeah, I just wanted to say, to highlight the why why it's complex and the if I, I believe Elizabeth, you're totally right that Canada wants it recognizes the opportunity that exists and wants to make the most of it, but it's very tricky because for one thing, it takes two to tango, and those yeah. governments in both cases are not necessarily receptive to Canadian overtures at the moment because of pre-existing tensions that we don't have time to chronicle yeah. here. <laughs> but the other factor too is is even politically, it can be very challenging. There, Canada mm -hmm. has faced a lot of pushback from the opposition about being too cozy with China, mm -hmm. despite all the recent tensions. And the fact is that both uh, in, in a number of these emerging economies, there are lots of concerns around human rights and other issues that mm -hmm. the Canadian regime cannot be seen to uphold or sanction. So that mm -hmm. gets really hard. And that's why yeah. I think it's 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 such a balancing act for, for the Trudeau government or frankly for anyone in government to try and find the best middle ground for any of these relationships. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and building on that, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the idea that is there a path forward for this Trudeau government to be able to improve relations in the region and really have a, a lowering of the tensions with these, these emerging powers like China, India, and some of the other Asian Pacific partners, or is a change in government, in, in leadership needed for 
a, a clean slate to kind of begin to normalize uh, relations. Michelle, I'll start with you on this. Uh, it's so hard to say because it, with the bulk of these issues, so much of the real action happens behind closed doors. Uh, mm -hmm. The real person carrying the file on this would be Melanie Jolie. She's the foreign affairs minister. Uh, by all accounts, people seem really relatively pleased with her performance. But uh, in the case of India, we talked about this on the panel some weeks ago in case you caught it. Uh, but there was... We were all a little stymied as to how Canada sees its way out of this one, given the fact that Canada was the one that stood up and, and made the accusation of foreign interference with regard to the extrajudicial killing of a Canadian citizen. Uh, so that one's going to be difficult to to simmer down, I think. In China's case, uh, we recently, as in two days ago, saw Xi Jinping sit down with President Joe Biden. That would have been inconceivable a couple of years ago. So I'm going to land on never say never with that one. Elizabeth, what about you? Do you do you see a path forward with this current uh, government and administration to really stabilize relations within the region? Yeah, I, th I think you know to sort of just echo what Michelle says. I, th I think the Liberals certainly are are in trouble. You know, they've they've been in power for for eight years now, quite a long time, and there's been some some scars earned in that time. So I think it's yeah, it's definitely going to you know require a lot of sort of uh, diplomacy and and work from from diplomats to figure out like how are we going to move forward and and you know build some kind of. Um, meaningful relationship for for both parties and you're right i think you know we have to be careful because this the the state that is is also um in there now and and having those conversations uh and and let's let's expand out let's take kind of a a bit of a a view overall of the trudeau government on the international stage as of today what is the lasting legacy of the trudeau government as we heard in the sound clip eight years now in the on the international front, uh, Michelle, what do you think the overall legacy of this government and administration has been? Uh, I don't think it's going to be one of the highlights, uh, the highlight reels when looking back on this administration. There, you know, there were lots of great photo ops, lots of good glad handing a really strong relationship with the United States out of the gate when Barack Obama was still in power. Even when Donald Trump took over, the, the one very notable success I will say was would be the U the new U.S. Mexico Canada trade agreement. Uh, that that was a bit of a coup to land that, but otherwise uh, there are a lot of blots on on Canada's legacy in in, in this past few years. Uh, with no need to rehash it. We've just basically done that. But uh, I don't think foreign affairs is an area where this government has particularly shone. Yeah, from in in my mind, I feel like. Um, since uh, Trudeau's come in as a prime minister, and, and we've laid it out already, seems to be a shrinking of Canada's influence on the international stage. We we no longer are on that Security Council. We Our relationships with inter big international uh, partners has really been frayed or shrunk or has shifted to the way that, you know, pre-Trudeau uh, pre ascending power, we were in a pretty good position and, and people did look to Canada in some way, shape or form, maybe not directly to lead these discussions, but to be a part of it where now sometimes even at the APAC summit, there was questions where is Canada even going to be involved in some of these side uh, conversations that take mm -hmm. place behind the scenes, mm -hmm. behind the closed doors. Elizabeth. One thing worth noting, though, really quickly, though, yeah. I opened, I'm the one who opened up the Security Council can of worms, and it's worth noting that the first refusal to include Canada there was pre-Trudeau in 2010 under Stephen Harper. So that it, we, not fair everything enough. can be laid at Trudeau's feet. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Thank you for, for that very important distinction and, and point. Uh, Elizabeth, any thoughts on this? 
Yeah, I think I think you know we've we've got some work to. I think historically Canada has been seen on the international stage as sort of really championing immigration and climate change. But I think you know as we've laid out, there's there's a pretty um, steep curve, a steep path ahead, um, given some of the things that we've already we've already talked about. I think we have sort of have to redeem ourselves, is I mm-hmm. guess what I'm saying. And, and okay, so let's let's now look back within our borders domestically. Uh, as I also played at the top of this segment, there was those new polling numbers that really showed an unfavorable view on this liberal government. I, I will add the context that it seems that pretty much any uh, leader in power right now is kind of gaining negative poll numbers or unfavorable poll numbers. But I think the fact that literally 50% of respondents say they, they want to see someone else in, in power or in leadership before the next election. Do you see uh, the the Liberal government as of now uh, being able to hold on to power on, during the next election, or is now the right time to maybe explore the next leadership candidate for the following uh, election? And uh, I'll, I'll start with Michelle on this. Sure. Uh, well, I, I I would not be putting a lot of money on the Liberals getting reelected <laughs> next time around. Yeah. Personally, um, it's funny you asked Alex about the, the, the path to to better experiences globally, mm-hmm. and for me, I, I see less of a path at home uh, than than extra than in, in international relations in terms of Trudeau's performance and popularity. I I really don't see this one turning around. First of all, it's really not that unusual to have this kind of degree of, of discontent at this stage of the game. Eight years is a long time. Yep. If the um, agreement between the NDP and the Liberals hold, we're not going to be going to the polls for another year and change. Sometime in 2025 is what that de- that agreement is meant to hold on till. So, and adding to all of this are the, the issues that specifically are being laid on the liberals mm-hmm. in affordability housing health care so many things some of which uh, there may be more merit to than others but the fact is that big everyday issues that hit canadians directly where they live are dragging this government's polling numbers down and right or wrong there's a perception that this government has failed on those files those are big 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 failures you have a, a surging opposition leader who's gaining a lot of traction and is being very successful at getting himself and his party well established um there are a lot of wins that are not at the liberals backs right now and i don't see those shifting around any time to be at their backs before the next election all very good points and as we've highlighted on this panel before a lot of the criticism especially as you laid out housing healthcare, all that that's typically on the provincial side but for whatever reason the the conversation has has been focused on the federal side and specifically yeah. this liberal government elizabeth i'm gonna climate give... change is a huge one too i should climate mention change. and that absolutely. one is a pretty federal file so Ab- yeah. Yeah. absolutely elizabeth i'm going to give you last word on this topic yeah, I think certainly Trudeau, you know, unfortunately has been a, a little bit of a lightning rod. He's attracted that oppositional lightning, shall we say. And I, I think part of it for sure is that is that Canadians are are quite um discontented. Certainly there's been a lot of frustration with the carbon tax. Um, will can they change? I think they'd have to radically change in order to 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 garner support in the next election. And I think if they don't do so soon, then you know they they might um lose their power, lose their uh, certainly we're seeing that in the in the West. So I think, you know, it's going to need a radical change for them to um, to continue in 2025. 
Absolutely. Okay, let's leave the conversation there. Enough of this international talk. Let's look more domestically and at home. So coming up after the break, Ontario announced a number of changes to its labor laws this week. Michelle, Elizabeth, and myself consider some of the advantages and disadvantages of such changes. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Now news panel on AMI-tv. I'm joined again by Elizabeth Muller and Michelle McQuig. And our next topic, Ontario has announced a number of changes to its labor laws this week. Among the changes are, include requirements to post salary ranges on job postings. Other changes include the banning of all unpaid trial shift for hospitality workers. And Labor Minister David Pacini says that the new language will explicitly ban the practice of those trial shifts. I mean, imagine telling an investment banker they're working for free today. You know, why should a server do it? So we're, we're making it very clear on, on trial shifts. And the legislation will also ban the loss or deduction of wages due to customers dining and dashing. By making it explicit, we'll be a leader in Canada um, and, and protecting protecting workers that, that dine and dash is not acceptable, and, but it's never going to fall on the backs of workers. And so now I want to uh, start with you on this one, Elizabeth. So which one of these labor law changes are you most interested in? I think I'm most interested in the law that really speaks to the no longer having staff come in to do trial shifts uh, without cost um, or without pay to the, the staff person. I, I've worked in the service industry, so this one hits close to home for me. And I think, you know, absolutely, there's a, there's a training period where when you're bringing somebody on, they are learning. So that's a, an investment in time from, from the employer perspective or from the trainer perspective. But I think it's also really dangerous when you're bringing people on without pay just from a, a labor and equity lens. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing sort of how that's going to play out. Like, is there going to be, you know, a, a reduced salary for people in their own training period? Is it going to be the same salary? Mm. Um, what will probation look like? All those kind of things. Um, you know, I'm, I'm also really excited about the posting of salaries, and we can get into that in a little bit. But I have some questions for jobs that where it's not as straightforward as you get this amount each each week or each biweekly period because there's lots of jobs that don't fall into that. So I guess the you know that'll be something we can unpack and uncoil through the through the segment this morning. Absolutely. And so Michelle, this was your topic that you you pitched to the the panel. So which one caught your attention the most? Well, in fairness, it was actually Joita's, but I had oh. debated pitching it last <laughs> week, and uh, we, then we shared a brain, and we're both considering pitching it this week, and this time she beat me to it, so it's all good. Um, anyhow, but no, the, I, I find this very interesting. Ontario is making a number of, of changes to the Labour Code that all seem fairly um, off-brand for a, a, a government that generally tries to uphold the status quo, it is, is definitely not particularly seen as pro-Labour. But you're seeing all these measures in, in new legislation in the past couple of weeks. There is a new Labour minister, so I don't know how much of a reflection of that change this all is. Um, those generally originate from the top down and don't necessarily stem from an individual minister, but it certainly is a nice look for David Puccini coming into this file. 
And uh, I, the ones that really jumped out at me are one that we hadn't mentioned yet is the, the explicit banning of Canadian work experience for people. I think that's a really interesting one. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we have talked at some length about uh, the difficulty that foreign workers have in, in getting work that that's appropriate to their training and skill level. Uh, even Joita mentioned last week the anecdote we've all come across about the doctor driving a cab or some such. Um, so specifically banning employers from demanding Canadian work experience, I think is a really interesting and and, and worthwhile step. Uh, The other one that jumps out at me too, like Elizabeth, would be the salary transparency issue. Uh, Like you, Elizabeth, I I love your your questions about the specifics of the rollout for the the Dine and Dash legislation and and the, uh, the trial shift one great points uh but i i also share your questions on the the transparency because the, you know there are roles for which this will not necessarily be as helpful uh you i guess we need to have some guidelines on how to share this the the real salary in a way that's impactful to people and that they can understand and, and compare apples to apples when making their employment decisions but mm-hmm. it is a really interesting step and it potentially has implications around addressing historic wage gaps and a whole other thing a whole list of other things yeah so for me that is really the biggest key of this new legislation that's the really um the the really juicy meaty uh like kind of legislation that's going to come in that's going to have the biggest impact I, I appreciate both of you highlighting different ones, and, and there are value, and there's an important um, kind of uh, step for each of these to really have an impact on the job market. I just think posting of salaries just across the board is going to really impact the entire mm-hmm. uh, workforce, because not only is it going to impact people who are being hired, but now any employee who's already within the uh, company or corporation, if they see a job posting for a position that may be similar, they can also immediately kind of compare what their salary compensation is and and then look at what the company wage is. And so you you better inform yourself as a worker already. Whereas, you know, as you mentioned, Michelle, it's a, the removal of the need to have Canadian experience. The, the challenge with uh, the job hiring process, it's very subjective. A company and hiring manager can still make decisions whether they they will vocalize it or not vocalize it on what they look for, they may still favor someone who has work experience that's more local. And then they may define it a different way or view it differently. But mm. I, I think there's still kind of uh, like loopholes or, or ways that they couldn't kind of navigate that without being discriminatory. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I do also agree that the, um, the ending of trial shifts is very important, as you mentioned, Elizabeth. I just think that that aspect has less of an impact because it's very focused on that hospitality sector. And as we, we mm-hmm. heard from David Pacini, it's like it'd be, you're not going to ask an accountant or, or, or a doctor come and do a trial shift. You know, that's just very industry specific. So I think that that uh, job uh, wage posting is going to really have the broadest impact. But uh, Michelle, you kind of teased and, and pointed on this about how this can potentially uh, kind of close that wage gap. So expand on that a bit more for me. Well, I... I, I... This is not an area where I have a ton of expertise, but I have done some. I've, some of the reading I've I've done recently has identified the fact that there is still, in 2023, a wage gap between men and women, and that historically, and not just historically, but today, apparently, um, women, according to this study that I read, earn 84 cents on every dollar that a man makes, which is wild. So we know that gap was historically much, much, much larger. It has closed. There's obviously still a ways to go. Uh, I like the point you raised, Alex, about internal uh, 
divisions. We've seen and heard stories, all of us, I'm sure, about, you know, person X gets hired for a job that person Y used to do for $15,000 more. Uh, those kinds of questions, I think, would be well served by having greater greater transparency. It'll be great for workers to be able to make better informed decisions about what they're looking at. Um, but again, as with any legislation, and you guys have already highlighted so many ways this is the case with this one, it only really just got tabled, I think, yesterday. Uh, but the devil is in the details with any of this legislation. And there's going to mm-hmm. be, we need to know some specifics, looking at the wage issue specifically. Um, you know, obviously you need to figure out what you're going to, are you sharing hourly rates? Is it an annual salary? What comes with it? Are there other compensatory things that you need to account for? Are there benefits? Are there pensions? Are there, uh, are there other factors that need to be factored in here? So it's not just wages that are of interest to people. And I don't know how far that kind of transparency will go, but all of these things are the factors that people weigh when they're trying to make an employment decision and they, Mm -hmm do all have implications for, for the various identity groups that people uh, discuss when just mulling these issues. So uh, it's a great start. And I think it could go some way just by, just by providing, providing data. If you have data, you're in a better position to make analysis and potentially make some data-based decisions. So having that is a really good start, but again, um, data quality uh, will remains to be seen. <laughs> Elizabeth, you yeah. you mentioned that you had some questions, some concerns about what this will yes. be. Expand on that. Like, what concerns do you have? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the articles I read said I believe it was thirty seven percent of all jobs online um, posted a, a you know a salary, a wage salary, and then I kind of thought, okay, so if other jobs aren't, you know, what is the reason? So are they, we've talked about hourly wage um, or hourly wage, you know, what about people that work on commission or, um, you know, people where you're hired for like a project or, you know, gig work's becoming a lot more common. Um, And so while I think there's absolutely a need for this, a lot of our workforce now isn't sort of that salaried based. There's a lot of sort of flexi work. There's a lot of sort of um, work that's done, um, you know, gig work, like I said. And so I, I think, think about that sign, I go, okay, but like, let's dig down a little deeper. Like were those 37% or were all those jobs that were being analyzed, um, salary-based jobs? It's, it's pretty hard if you're posting for uh, a writer for a project and it's sort of project-based, um, to post that. And so again, you know, we've talked about this, but devil in the details there, you know, certainly I think from a time perspective, this will help. So an employee who's applying, I've applied for lots of jobs and it, it, it's nice to know up front, is this going to be worth my time instead of you apply and you go to the interview and then you find out, you know, what that salary might be and go, that's not going to work for my life situation. Um, and from the employer side too, you're not interviewing people endlessly and then figuring out, okay, mm-hmm. um, you know, this isn't, this isn't working. Um, so I think for me, like what really resonated again, like I said, was that stat, but really like drilling down and figuring out like, okay, but what are these jobs that we're analyzing? Like, is this even a job where a salary would be relevant? We don't, right. yeah. yeah. See, and, and you you started to mention a point there, Elizabeth, about the employers, because I, I also wonder too, like the impact on the employers mm-hmm. and the hiring employers that maybe, mm-hmm. you know, by listing, you know, the salary up front, the, the applicants are going to change. If there is a certain applicant who is expecting a, a certain salary and they're, they're seeing what the conversation is, whether it's too low for uh, for what they feel that they're, uh, they they should make or or maybe it's it's higher, you're going to get a different type of applicant and you're, you're going to be guessing less when you get through the final process. If you do uh, uh, kind of find someone you want to hire, it's not that kind of uh, I guess mm-hmm. tense negotiation or, or yep. trying uh, the, it's the gap is not too wide 
but you may also see less applicants per positions depending on what the type of job is and especially if, if they're looking to hire for a lower a salary than what the industry standard would be or what the average wage for that is you're, you're going to see less applicants as a result and it may force some some employers to change their their viewer approach to hiring and and the level of compensation they would have to uh, give out I think it makes them ask questions like mm -hmm. what is the real yes. value of what we want here what are we truly looking for and what are we actually willing to pay for it and i think yeah. that, honestly I, I i in a former life for pre-journalism i was involved in on a recruitment team with a major uh a, a very large canadian company i'll mm -hmm. leave it at that but um that was a, a crucial part of any pre-screening conversations. I think any sound process does address that issue right off the top because that's a crucial one for both sides. Employers don't have unlimited resources. Employees have obligations they need to meet. And there are a number of cases where you will say the salary range for this is X and, employer, and, a, and a prospective employee will say, sorry, that simply doesn't work for me. And it's in everyone's best interest. If you can just say, okay, thanks for your application, best of luck and move on because they have a job to find and you have a job to fill. You just can't reconcile those two sometimes. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, you know, it got me thinking, Michelle, when you're talking about other things that maybe should be posted um, on all job postings that aren't. So, you know, is there other information that's really relevant that, that we're missing or potentially we need to think about, um, you know, as we're, as we're thinking about how to do a more equitable uh, job posting? So, yeah. Totally. Yeah. And it may be even like in the more information you provide, the more enticing it may be for mm -hmm. for, for an applicant to want to apply. Because if, if you are being open, transparent and, and highlighting all your uh, your benefits, the, the compensation, as you say, like, you know, from uh, a retirement plan, maybe there's a gym membership or things like that. You lay it all out. You're, you're going to see people are going to understand this is what the full level of compensation is beyond just this is what the salary range is. For sure. And I'm Elizabeth, your points about gig work is, is are really, really interesting. And I have not looked at this new legislation. I don't know to what degree gig gig, gig work is, is included or considered here, but it's such a great question. And those compensation questions that you just raised, Alex, we've talked a little bit on the panel about in the past about protections for gig workers who don't have any yeah. of those things historically. So are you know, could could there be a portable type of benefit system set up? I don't there's no indication at this stage that this government is willing to go there. Um, but it's early days, and if these are reforms I didn't really expect to see. So that's a whole other sort of piece of the puzzle. But if those kinds of mechanisms existed, yeah, I think it would be worth including that kind of material in job postings. Absolutely. Just so people know exactly what they're getting or signing up for. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll leave the conversation there for now. But coming up after the break, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business is requesting the government address concerns over the dominance of e-commerce giants. Looking at you, Amazon, Michelle and Elizabeth explore the state of competition in Canada for small businesses. You're watching uh, with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe, joined by Michelle McQuig and Elizabeth Moeller. Okay, one last topic to explore is the online marketplace, specifically with regards to independent businesses. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business is requesting the federal government 
address concerns over Amazon's dominance within the e-commerce space. The CFIB is suggesting the government make changes to the Competition Act. This follows the move by Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland to put forth an amendment in September to give the Competition Bureau more power. Okay, so there's a ton to explore in this topic, Michelle. Now, this one was your topic that you put forth this week. Why did this one catch your eye? <laughs> Amazon, Amazon elicits big feelings in a lot of people, myself ex included. Um, so this this struck me as interesting on its face. It's, a, it's an interesting issue. Is Amazon too dominant? I think we could probably say, yeah, probably. Um, but most of us use it anyway, still. Um, so that they're like it, right on its own. It's an interesting question, but it's the subtext, Alex, that you kind of alluded to there that that really makes this extra interesting uh, on two fronts. A, we've seen a, we've talked at some length on this panel. We've seen a lot of news coverage this year about limited competition in Canada on a number of industries. The Competition Bureau put out a report not long ago that was actually quite interesting in breaking it down by industry. Um, and on the other hand, we have the government trying to regulate big tech. We've seen that in a couple of different avenues uh, this year. We've, see, we've seen them that try to do that through the Online Streaming Act, the final draft of which came out this week. And of course, most notably, the Online News Act, when they're trying to get people like Google and Meta to start paying in to, to support Canadian journalism, which led, of course, to news no longer being shared on Facebook. So here we have the government uh, potentially taking on another target in a space where it has not historically enjoyed a whole lot of success. On the other hand, though, you do have that kind of demand and that push for broader competition and change here. So Amazon lies right at the intersection of these very interesting issues. And is, of course, it is in a way that really affects people because Amazon is this popular for a reason. Everyone uses it. Absolutely. Now, Elizabeth, do you feel like the CFIB is raising a valid point here? Absolutely. Um, you know, let's let's take Amazon for what it is. It's it's there for convenience, it's there for accessibility. Um, you know, it's there at the drop of a button or the the speak of a command to get what you want. But absolutely, uh, I have a, a number of um, colleagues that that have small businesses and actually can't get on Amazon either because it's yeah. too expensive to get on Marketplace. The bureaucracy to get on Marketplace is really difficult. Um, and then when they get on Marketplace, they're not turning enough of a profit. It, um, or their products are being pushed so far down that people aren't seeing them. Um, so there's all kinds of issues there. And, and I think what's really important here is to think about the fabric of community and, and small businesses are the fabric of our communities and the people in those communities. And so when we think about those businesses not being able to, um, to maintain uh, or to grow, and we have seen a, a decline in that, um, we look to people, or pe we look to companies like Amazon and say, okay, well, what's going on here? And there's a real ethical question, right, about um, how do we support small business owners and can they get ahead in, in this climate on Amazon? And, and it's looking like they can't. And now, Michelle, you laid out uh, in your last answer really uh, well how the government has gone up and, and had these fights with all different industries over the past year. Do you think it is worth adding Amazon to that list of the big tech, the grocery giants, everybody else the government has it's, been fighting with? It's a lot, and it's and and he, Amazon has deep, deep pockets to go mm -hmm. with their big, big balance sheet. Um, so I, hard, to, I, I, you know, hard to say whether it's worthwhile or not. But certainly the, the CFIB is raising a really valid issue 
it, it, it's well established. We all know small businesses can't compete. That's why we see a, a push in movements to kind of counteract Black Friday, for instance, uh, with various you know small business appreciation days and sending your love to them. And I do know I do know some people who actively do everything possible to avoid using Amazon and do try to give that kind of support. But the lure of of convenience really is a mm-hmm. thing for most people, mm-hmm. and uh, and the marketplace logistics, Elizabeth. I'm really glad you raised that. I don't have as much familiarity with that, but. It's interesting to hear about those kinds of barriers. And yes, that is something that a government theoretically could try to take on. So um, if we're talking, you know, if you take the view that the economy is the government's number one priority, then they almost have no choice but Mm. to try and do that. Mm. Because, of course, money going to Amazon is also going out of Canada. So. No, that's yeah. that's that's a very good point, Elizabeth. What? How do you feel of uh, the the federal yeah. government taking on Amazon now, uh, on top of all the other uh, uh, companies that they've uh, they've kind of had in their crosshairs? Yeah, it's. I would say it's needed. I think it's going to be an uphill battle. I think, you know, personally, I really grapple ethically with um, not just Amazon, but using, do I use big, big businesses that are more convenient? And let's face it, accessibility wise, right? Like these are platforms that because they're big and have money to invest can be very accessible, or do you use something that's smaller? Um, but I, I think it's needed. And I think, you know, part of how we maintain an economy is by uh, entrepreneurial spirit and, and a small business is a part of that. And so when people are saying as small business owners, well, you know, I, I, the return policies aren't clear to me, or I can't get help. I can't access customer service. Um, that's a, that's a real problem we need to address in terms of how Amazon is or isn't supporting those small business owners. Mm. Well, and, and the, I think the real draw, especially for an Amazon or one of these other huge retailers, especially in the e-commerce space, it's they have been able to offer free or very affordable mm-hmm. shipping, and then it's yep. the delivery speed. Yep. Whereas you you can't compare that against a a small business because it's it they don't have that reach. They don't have the logistical infrastructure to be able to offer that competitive price. You can you can probably match or get close to it on the product itself, but it's that actual transportation delivery, all those uh, kind of auxiliary parts of the sale that really is unmatched when you compare oh. Amazon to anyone else. Yeah, it's true. Absolutely. And and then you get suckered in, right? Yep. I, I, this yep. happened to me the other day. I, I I went to purchase something that I would have either had to travel all the way across city for and incur, you know, spend time, either time on transit or some kind of cab fare or Uber fare mm. or something to pick up. It, it is an Indian spice blend. Mm. They're hard to come by in my neighborhood. They exist elsewhere <laughs> in the city. Couldn't find it. However, for 10 bucks on Amazon, I could have it delivered to my door the very next day. And of course, when you're only doing a $10 thing, you're like, oh, well, what else do I need to get while I do this? So I can get mm-hmm. everything done. And then yeah. it becomes this whole shame spiral, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> it's a thing. It's you, a thing. You, get, you get suckered in. You do. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. And and so uh, I will, we'll end the conversation on this uh, quickly. Elizabeth, I'll start with you. How do you feel about the state of competition in, in Canada, especially in the business space? Yeah, I, I think we, we certainly have a, a dominant, you know, market, whether it be Amazon or, you know, whether that be, um, you know, purchasing things on, you know, like Apple or using Google. Um, you know, I think those those dominant mar- markets certainly exist. And I think, like I said, it's going to be really tricky to to move away from that. And I think, you know, on a personal level, like Michelle said, it, it is convenience and it, it is accessibility, um, right? And, and unfortunately, even sometimes with a smaller business, if I wanted to purchase something on their website, the reality 
reality is perhaps they don't have the, the funds or the know how to make their site accessible. So then I'm left going, okay, do I struggle through this and again, spend the time or go to that, you know, big giant, which I know at the very least is, is, is mostly accessible. Um, so I think there's a lot of sort of things to unpack and, and uncoil here around just like, what are the logistics of, of moving this forward? Absolutely. And uh, Michelle, I'll give you last word on this. This was your topic. Last word goes to you. <laughs> On, on competition in Canada generally, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's not great. I mean, that, that Competition Bureau report really lays that out. And if you think on, on aspects of your own life, what's competition like in Canadian telecom? Not great. Two or three players. Canadian banking, five or six players. Groceries, same. Three or four big players. Uh, this is kind of the the norm for in a lot of Canadian industries, the alarms have been sounded. You mentioned off the top that Christy Freeland has introduced motions to try and and, and address that situation by giving the Competition Bureau more power. That's a whole other issue is what the Competition Bureau can and cannot do and understanding that role. Um, but I think I think it's become pretty clear now that competition in Canada is an area that could use some diversification. Absolutely. So that's all the time we have for the news panel today. I want to thank Michelle McQuig and Elizabeth Moeller for pinch hitting today. No Michelle thank is, you for having me. Michelle is the news editor with the Canadian Press. Michelle, have yourself a wonderful weekend. Same to you, everybody. Take care. Okay. Yeah, and Elizabeth, you. you can't go anywhere because we will be checking in with you a bit later in the show. But uh, stick around. We'll, we'll uh, have, right. uh, check in with the weather. Okay. And so coming up after the break, I got a regional news update for you. And Brock Richardson is here to recap all the action from last night's Thursday night football game. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's also coming to you through audio on AMI+. I'm Alex Smythe in for Dave Brown. It's Friday, November 17th, 2023. Coming up on the second hour of the show, there have been a number of books in recent weeks that have won some literary awards. Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access gives you the latest news in the world of all things literature. And Netflix historical uh, drama, The Crown, has released part of its final season. Laura Bain will explore the responsibility historical dramas have to balance the fact with entertainment. All that and more, but first we begin with the regional news update. We'll start with British Columbia, as the British, uh, the BC government has appointed an administrator to act in place of the Surrey Police Board and assist the city's trouble transition from the RCMP to a municipal force. Public Safety Minister Mike Farnsworth says he expects the appointment of former Abbotsford Chief Constable Mike Sir will help move key issues forward, particularly around budgeting. When the, uh, the administrator's uh, uh, job is done, uh, then the uh, police board will be put back. Uh, and it, you know, if, if current members uh, want to serve on that uh, police board, I would have no hesitation in putting them uh, back on the police board. 
And sticking within BC, new labor protections announced in the province will bring support for app-based workers. Ride-hailing and food delivery drivers will now be paid at least minimum wage. Labor Minister Harry Bain says all employees deserve protections regardless of the work they do. All workers, regardless where they are from, what type of work they do, if they are working in British Columbia, they are entitled to a minimum standards and protections like other workers. Over to Ontario now. The suspect in the London van attack that claimed the lives of four people have been found guilty. Canadian press reporter Mon Almidi described the feeling in the courtroom during the verdict. There was a lot of grief that can be felt in the courtroom among those who came from London, Ontario to Windsor where the court was, where the, where the verdict was delivered. Um, those people are mostly um, members of the family, the extended family of the victims, or uh, friends of, of Yumna, who, is the, who was the 15-year-old uh, uh, daughter of the family who was killed also uh, in the attack. And lastly, in Ontario, Ont the government is boosting minimum wage for early childhood educators in most licensed childcare centres. The wage will increase to $23.86 an hour next year from $20 an hour. The news comes as Education Minister Stephen Lecce released his child care workforce strategy yesterday. Lecce says the wage floor will rise up to $25.86 by 2026. We're talking about a lift in the first year of nearly of 19%, which will continue to go up each and every year until 2026. That ends the disparity that existed between our ECs within our schools and the ECs within our childcare centers. And that's it for the regional news update. It's now time for Sports Chat with Brock Richardson. Brock, uh, Thursday night football, Baltimore Ravens, Cincinnati Bengals. It started to show some promise, but unfortunately, things quickly derailed. Yeah, the uh, Baltimore Ravens won 34-20. Uh, I will put the asterisks beside it and say that Cincinnati quarterback uh, Joe Burrow uh, went out in the uh, late part of the first half and didn't really return after that. Uh, because of a wrist injury, uh, this is a big problem if you're the Cincinnati Bengals because they were trending upwards, and uh, this is a big loss. When you lose your quarterback in the NFL, there seems to be a drastic difference between your A quarterback and your B quarterback, and I feel like this is going to be the case for the Bengals. So very unfortunate. I will say to you, Alex, that Lamar Jackson, the quarterback for the Baltimore Ravens, had a lot of time in the pocket. His defense was unbelievable, holding off uh, the, um, or sorry, his offensive line was unbelievable in holding off the uh, defense of the Cincinnati Bengals, so that he had lots of time and space to uh, to make things work. And I think you just saw that uh, last night. So Baltimore is really trending in the upward direction, but it's a big, big loss if you're the Cincinnati. Bengals. Yeah, having watched the first half of the game, as soon as Joe Burrow went down and he was injured, I was like, well, that's it for the game. I, I knew where this was going from here because even in that first half, uh, Joe Burrow was 
able to target, you know, his his weapons, his receivers, and really attack the Baltimore defense, which hasn't been done a lot in this season. And he was looking good. They were looking good. They, it was going to be a neck-and-neck neck race. But as you say, he went down. He had the wrist injury. Uh, there was a lot of uh, reports. There was footage showing him the night before in a brace on that wrist. Uh, a lot of questions starting to arise with Cincinnati because he had just really recovered from a calf injury that he tried to play through, wasn't effective. As a result, they weren't very successful on the field that first four weeks. But now he has that, that wrist injury. Why wasn't it kind of listed on the reports before if he was already wearing a soft cast going into the game? A lot of questions circling Cincinnati right now beyond just the play and who's going to be quarterback for them. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Okay, so let's uh, move uh, off of Thursday Night Football and start to take a look ahead at what uh, we can expect this weekend, Brock. There's a lot happening, including the start of the Pan uh, Para Pan Am Games. Yes, uh, this is the uh, second biggest event, I would say, in the quadrant of the four-year span. Uh, let's start with the Parapan Am Games, where you can get the events is you can get them on the CBC Gem app. You need to download the app uh, if you're going to follow it. They will have uh, multi-feeds every single day, um, and you can also go to the Canadian Paralympic Committee uh, uh, Facebook page and all their social medias. They will have uh, schedules for you and things like that. I will tell you, Alex, I do see, having logged in this morning, I do see some uh, streaming challenges with what's on what channel, but I do hope that uh, because this is day one, it's going to be a bit a uh, bit better as as the week goes on, but it will be something that I will be talking with uh, Dave with on Monday uh, because I can see this being a challenge uh, for individuals who are blind and partially sighted, but I want to give them a bit of an opportunity to get the kinks worked out over the weekend before I uh, talk about it a little more in depth. So yeah, it's all going to be there for you and uh, good luck to Canada as they embark on uh, about nine days of competition. I also should note, Alex, that the opening ceremonies is the big marquee event of the day today. It will start at 6.30 p.m. Eastern time and you can get that on the CBC Gem app or cbcsports.ca and that's kind of the big marquee game, uh, marquee event for today. Yeah, you know, it's going to be a, a huge event for all the uh, Canadian athletes who are down in Santiago, Chile, to, to compete, represent Canada. And, you know, there's going to be quite a few of them that we may see, uh, depending on how well they do, if they can build some momentum from these games, they may be representing Canada uh, next summer in Paris for the Paralympic Games. So it's definitely worth a watch. So thank you for bringing that to our attention, Brock. What about the other sports that are happening this weekend? What games are you going to be paying close attention to? Well, the big uh, event, if you're uh, Canadiana and uh, still have your Canada pride, is the Grey Cup between the Montreal Alouettes and the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. That is going to be an interesting game. I will tell you, Alex, I just think that uh, it's going to be a lopsided game. I think that the Win Winnipeg Blue Bombers are going to probably have this wrapped up by halftime, if not early in the third quarter. I just think that uh, uh, Winnipeg's just that much better. 
Uh, Cody Fajaro, the quarterback for the uh, Montreal Alouettes, needs to be able to get the ball out of his hand quicker and, uh, you know, maybe a little more than three yards per average throw would be helpful. But I just think that this is going to be a lopsided affair uh, for the Grey Cup this year. I think there's going to be quite a few turnovers. I think defense is really going to shine in this game. We saw in both of the the semifinal games, the defense really step up, cause multiple turnovers, really pressure those offenses. As you mentioned, Montreal only had three yards per per pass. Uh, so I hope the offense can can kind of shine a little bit, but I, I definitely foresee defense playing a big role in this Grey Cup game in Hamilton. And then lastly, Brock, what uh, football, what NFL game do you have on your radar this weekend? I have three, and I'll run through them uh, very quickly. The first one in the 1 o'clock hour is the Las Vegas uh, Raiders versus the Miami Dolphins. This is really an opportunity for the Miami Dolphins to sort of take control of the AFC, I think that Buffalo is helping them out with uh, losing some of their games. The uh, 4 o'clock games, there's two of them. Tampa Bay Buccaneers versus the uh, San Francisco 49ers. That will be a good one. And then 425 is the uh, primetime game, which is the Buffalo Bills versus the New York Jets. And Buffalo should come out with some axe to grind because they lost against the New York Jets in week one of the season. So... Some interesting football games on the docket come Sunday. Absolutely, and uh, I think a lot of question marks with with uh, all three of those games that, that you mentioned. Miami, are they really going to shine? Are they really going to be dominant against a Raiders team that's already fired their head coach and GM? Uh, in in terms of Buffalo, are they going to be able to bounce back against a good Jeff defense that? You know, the offense is really struggling. How can they take advantage of that? And then finally, San Francisco, are they going to continue to be dominant against a, a pretty good, not great Tampa Bay team, a team that's going to be competitive, that's going to be tough? How is San Francisco going to fare? So lots of uh, storylines to follow, and we will definitely have a breakdown of this on Monday. Uh, Brock, when I'm back in the chair hosting one more day for, for Dave, so we'll recap all these games, and we'll take a look at uh, the first slew of action from the Parapan Pan Am games. But for now, have yourself a wonderful weekend full of sports there, Brock. Indeed, and I look forward to chatting with you on Monday. Sounds good. That is Brock Richardson at the Sports Desk. Before we go to break, are you interested in being part of a live studio audience? Well, don't worry, because AMI has an opportunity for you. Kelly and Rami are taping a special episode of their show on Friday, November 27th. They're looking for 50 individuals to be a part of that audience. So if you live in Toronto, in the surrounding area, in the GTA, and you want to be a part of it, send an email, info at ami.ca. Just be warned, space is limited, so get those emails in early. All those in attendance will receive a Kelly and Ramia gift bag. And on top of that, if that's not enough incentive, your name will be entered into a draw, and you can potentially win one of two Apple gift cards valued at $500 each. You'll also have an opportunity to win one of five $50 Tim Hortons gift cards. So for a chance to win those prizes and to uh, be involved in all that, you have to be a part of the live audience on November 27th. The taping will air on a future date on AMI. So 
to confirm your, com uh, your participation. Send that email, info at ami.ca, info at ami.ca. Hope to see you there. Coming up after the break, we have the weather story of the day with Elizabeth Moeller and Laura Bain stops by for a entertainment story all around the crown and historical dramas. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe, for Dave. It's, I, it's time now for the weather story of the day with Elizabeth Moeller. Elizabeth, you want to take a look ahead and highlight Ontario's changing weather. We've enjoyed such a nice stretch of weather, but things are, are starting things to change. Are changing. Yes, that gorgeous week of the sunshine and the mild November weather. Well, it's it's coming to an end across southern Ontario. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news on a Friday. <laughs> <laughs> it, it might seem strange that the sun is shining and beautiful blue skies because November's typically, you know, very gloomy. Uh, gray weather. But enjoy that sunshine while you can, however, because a cold front is sweeping through and bringing rainfall with it, unfortunately. So this is going to send temperatures back to reality as early as this weekend. And there's even signs of a brief period of lake effect snow showers southeast of Lake Huron and Georgian Bay. And changeable weather is expected for next week, starting off as chilly and then ending that way for the second half of the week with a little bit of mild stuff in between. Just for some perspective, Windsor should be around eight degrees this time of the year and Toronto should be around seven. So this actually makes this warm spell that we're having about five degrees above average. You can expect four to six degrees daytime highs this weekend. So dress in layers if you're off to perhaps a Santa Claus parade this weekend or maybe if you're Alex Smythe and you're off to a sports game or two, dress <laughs> in some warm layers. <laughs> I'm, unfortunately, I don't have any plans to, to go to any sports game as much as I would love to check out the Great Cup in, in uh, nearby Hamilton. I think I'm going to be relaxing at home, catching up on some sleep, maybe watching some games remotely under the, the comfort of covers. But Elizabeth, it was so nice to have this stretch of nice warm weather oh, while it lasted. It was a, a sweet treat before the the. It's a bit season. gray out my window today, so I think we're already starting to see the signs of some showers percolating. A little bit of grayness outside my window here. Yes, absolutely. Okay, uh, thank you so much, Elizabeth. Don't go anywhere. We will be coming back to you in uh, a few minutes for the roundtable discussion. But for now, we say goodbye to Elizabeth. And in a minute, we will welcome in Laura Bain, who has the entertainment story of the day. But first, texting is about to get a lot better between Android and iPhone devices. Here's reporter Mike Dubusky with Tech Trends. Most major smartphone manufacturers support the RCS texting standard. 9to5Max Chance Miller says it's a technology that gets you modern texting features so long as you're not texting an Apple device. Google and Samsung and Android, all of those platforms have supported for a while now, but Apple has not. But on Thursday, Apple announced it will add support for RCS on the iPhone next year. What this means is that RCS will bring typing indicators, read receipts, higher quality photos and videos to communicate 
communication that's between iPhone and Android. But Apple says its texting app, iMessage, will remain exclusive to iPhones, despite regulatory pressure overseas. So Apple's probably hoping that doing RCS will get the EU off their back and protect them from having to actually cave in and make iMessage an open standard. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. The first few episodes of the long-running and highly celebrated historical drama The Crown has just been released on Netflix, but it's not without some controversy. Laura Bain is here to have more details with the Entertainment Report. Laura, so what is going on with the new season of The Crown? Yeah, that's right. So um, the Netflix has decided to split the sixth and final season uh, of the historical drama about the British royal family. Uh, with the first four episodes, folks can stream those right now on Netflix, and the rest of them are coming out on December 14th. I'm a fan of the show. I find that split really annoying to only just get the first few episodes, but that's not the controversy. So okay. uh, the first few seasons of the show covered events that were further back in history, really kind of starting around the time of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II, and it got a lot of positive reviews. But as the show has come closer to more recent decades, uh, with the most recent se uh, season uh, being around the time of the passing of Princess Diana, it's been accused of sensationalizing events and veering too far from reality. And I actually read that the UK Secretary of Culture asked Netflix back in 2020 to add a disclaimer uh, to the show that it's fictionalized, which they they didn't. Um, so this just kind of has me thinking uh, about these historical dramas and whether the writers, the producers have an ethical obligation to stay true to the, like as true to the facts as possible, especially when we're talking about figures that are still alive being portrayed. Uh, you know, I, I think there's certainly some responsibility that the uh, the creators should have, especially if you want to uh, kind of ground your story in reality. And, and if you want to, if your goal is to really highlight, you know, what was really going on behind the scenes. And that, that seems, I, I haven't really watched The Crown, I've seen snippets, but that seems to be what the intention is of this series, is to really show the story of you know, Queen Elizabeth II through her reign and, and highlighting different key moments in her reign. And I, I think certainly in this context, there should be that kind of standard that you keep in meet, especially if you built multiple seasons leading up to this new new installment that you've grounded this in fact, in history, in, in what has really happened. I think there is a bit of that challenge though, especially when you get to events like the passing of uh, Princess Diana. And, and you mentioned the word sensationalize. I, I, I think that's a really apt word for it because in, in real life, in history, when that event happened, that was sensationalized. The, the, the paparazzi was all over, like it was a different era of how um, the royals were followed, how they were portrayed, how they were kind of talked about within media, whereas before, at the beginning of the reign of Queen Elizabeth, there was a lot more subdued, proper, there was a lot more circumstance and, and, and uh, um, I guess, careful uh, reporting that would go on. But what, what are your thoughts on, on this whole idea uh, there, Laura? 
Yeah, it's so complicated, um, kind of as you say there. And I guess this current season actually features a ghost Princess Diana. I don't think okay. that's a spoiler because it's been making a lot of uh, headlines as not being so popular. Um, of course, that's something that's going to be fictionalized and we need to think about, you know, maybe at like Harry and William and kind of what your feelings would be. As you mentioned, they went through this at the time and then to kind of have it, it is such a popular show. I, I'm torn. I I hesitate to want to curb artistic freedom in any way. And on the other hand, I'm uncomfortable when living people are portrayed and not consulted. I think that it can be really exploitative and harmful. Um, you know, on the other hand, I think as well, it's not going to have as much of an impact in Canada or certainly in the U.S., but it can have a major political impact in the UK. This, you know, when we're talking about a dramatization about the royal family and I think it is very hard to separate out fact from fiction and a lot hinges on the public's ability to do that. And I have to admit that I struggle with that with this show because I feel like I've learned a lot from it about the history of the royal family that I didn't know. And, but I, you know, I don't necessarily know enough to know when something is being portrayed in a way that's inaccurate. Like, yes, I know it's a drama. I know that a lot of the conversations are kind of imagined, but I think I do fall into that sort of trap of thinking, oh, this is how things played out, which can obviously be sort of problematic. Well, I, I also think, too, there there is a separation and a difference between portraying uh, someone who's living who is just a average citizen opposed to someone who is part of a family that uh, claim the right to rule entire nations, including our own, whether it's symbolic or still, we we literally just change, you know, the faces of our coins to adopt King Charles II. They still claim uh, the rule of Canada, so I, I don't mm -hmm. feel like we have to necessarily consult the royal family or, or have that obligation to necessarily be as careful uh, in terms of our, our the vetting of creative works. But I, I think it's more what the project was, how it started, that they, they grounded it in reality. You should maintain it. You shouldn't be having ghosts appear in uh, later seasons of, of real people. I think that's a stretch too far. But in terms of how they're they're covering it, if they feel that they are still staying true to it, I'm I'm OK with that. Yeah, for sure. I knew this would be an interesting discussion with you, Alex, as someone who's, uh, you know, interested in history, as mm -hmm. I know that you are. Um, yeah, I think that's that's fair, um, perhaps, about not consulting with the royal family. Um, I just, as I say, I you know, it is so important to understand history, and mm -hmm. I kind of, you know, there's if you go on Netflix or other platforms, there's so many dramatizations and so many... Um, Oh, sorry, apparently I've set off S-I-R-I. -I. You can hear that. We'll ignore it. But, um, uh, but there, oh, yeah, there's just that, so, there's, there's there's so, no, that's, that's fine. There's so many, uh, just different, um, uh, cases out there. And, and when you have the, the good adaptations, the not so good adaptations, it can really, uh, leave the audience questioning what, what is tr uh, truly historical fact or fiction. But Yes, exactly. Yeah. That, was, that was the point I was trying to get at there, so thank yeah. you for helping me not, out Not a problem. Laura, thank you so much for bringing this topic forward. Enjoy your weekend. Enjoy the first four episodes of The Crown, and we'll chat on Tuesday. 
Sounds good. Okay, that was Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report. Coming up after the break, it's roundtable time. Elizabeth Moeller has, uh, has a question for myself, Ramya, and Nizreen. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv and in audio on AMI-plus.ca. I'm Alex Smythe. It's time now for our roundtable chat. But before I welcome in Nisreen Abdel-Majid and Ramya Muthan, Elizabeth Moeller, you came across a story about QR code fraud, and it's got you thinking. Yes, so... QR code fraud. When are we ever going to hear the end of it, right? So now we're hearing um, that fraud is possible through QR codes. So just like you might get like a phishing scam email or a phishing scam link. Uh, we're seeing that through uh, QR codes, you know, the same way you might through like a malicious website. And in fact, that's what that QR code directs you to. Um, and the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre has really tried to work on some education and awareness campaigns to kind of help Canadians understand what is fraud and how to avoid it. Um, given that we know half of Canadians in 2023 stated that they actually had fallen victim to fraud, 49%. That's pretty scary. So I wanted to ask the panel, what strategies do you use to implement, to understand whether a phone call or an email might be fraudulent? Ramya. This is not really a technique or a strategy, but it really is to assume that everything's fraud until um, believed otherwise. Mm -hmm. There's just so much, as you said, Elizabeth, and we haven't even gotten into like the frequency, right? Like the daily, weekly, monthly, um, honestly, in a day, just in any given typical day, I would get at least four phone calls. That's not real. Um, and now there wow. are text messages and there are emails and there are like very clever ways of making fraud um, or scam seem pretty believable, right? Like it's not just these robo auto messages anymore. There are a lot of uh, ways that you, even if you instinctually or intuitively think that something is fraud, you kind of second guess yourself thinking, oh, but, mm -hmm. and um, you know, and it's circumstantial also. Like if you're waiting for a delivery and you get a notification, you're not going to most of you is not going to second guess that this is a, a fraudulent um, notification. So uh, the strategy for me is assume it's fraud and then go from there. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good uh, point, Ramya. And it's kind of the same strategy I kind of in, employ just because, you know, you, you never know. As you're, you're right. Like sometimes it's easy to identify, especially if it's like, oh, here's a suspicious email for a bank that I'm not actually affiliated with. Okay, then that's that's fraud. But, you know, what if it is a, a bank you're affiliated with? What if it is something, mm -hmm. as you say, a package that you are expecting? Mm -hmm. Oh, there's I got an email about shipping. It's, it, you, there's the steps you can use to really go through and identify, like especially on an email. But a QR code, you really can't read a QR code without scanning it. Like at least exactly. you, you can't identify, you know, issues or, or, or kind of concerns with it by just merely looking at it, you have to use your phone to scan it. So 
it, things are getting a lot more intricate, a lot more challenging, and I, I think it's only going to get worse with the rise of AI. So being as vigilant as possible, being up to date with what is being used, what are the techniques that fraudsters are using, I think is really key. Uh, Nisreen, what about you? What in, uh, strategies do you employ to, to be aware of fraud? Well, at first, I I agree with you all. Um, I, at first, it was the emails. You know, years, years, years and ago, years ago, you can tell when something is fraud when there's an email and the subject line is something that you're not familiar with. So you're like, okay, I'll avoid that. I'll avoid opening that email. Then it became the phone calls and. Um, they'll say, oh, you have a free trip. Just give me your Visa card number or something like that. <laughs> um, something like, you know, um, and unfortunately, a lot of people fall for things like that. And and it's very unfortunate. And, and people uh, target seniors and who, who are not familiar with the, that kind of stuff, who are not familiar with identifying whether it's broad or not, right? Um, then it became the text messages, and the text messages are more complex because, as you guys mentioned, when you're expecting a package and then a text message says your package is on the way, just click this link or whatever, you're kind of wondering, is this actually my package or is this fraud? What am I pressing here? So, I don't, honestly, I can't have a strategy for this because when you get into QR codes, that's even worse because everything is a QR, QR code. My business card is a QR code <laughs> where you, <laughs> you, um, you scan it and you go into something else, right? Like, so everything turned into a QR code and it's hard to determine. I can't have a strategy and if somebody does, please let us know because <laughs> it's so much more complex nowadays to tell whether something is fraud or not. I can tell you something, I can tell you this, Never, ever, ever give your SIM card or your visa number. That's just it. Yeah, yeah. and, and th those strategies. are all those like those basic uh, generic yeah. like the basics. Yeah, that, a that's lot it. of people are like, you yeah. know what? What's the harm? Yeah, um, it's, it's it's unfortunate that people fall for that kind of stuff. You know. Well, and, and I think that's that's part of it, right? And then uh, uh, this is where we'll kind of uh, have our last thoughts on it, is the fact that there are vulnerable populations out there, especially when we start looking at QR codes. If you have mm -hmm. vision loss, I mean, you're yeah. dependent on your, your mm -hmm. phone for, you know, talk back or, or, or right. screen readers and stuff. You mm -hmm. can't really avoid that. So, Elizabeth, like, how are uh, people, especially those with disabilities, more vulnerable to yeah. things like this? It's a great question. Um, you know, I know for myself as someone who's a screen reader, email addresses can be really tricky because JAWS might not read it differently if one or two letters is off. And I, I have in the past gotten emails from people that I know, supervisors, employers, and then something just doesn't sound right. And I'll step back and go, no, that doesn't sound right. We're also more vulnerable because let's face it, there is a higher degree of isolation. So it's particularly among our seniors or older adults, folks will pick up the phone because they want want to talk to someone and before you know it, they're having a very intimate personal conversation, right? So there's certainly that vulnerability piece mm -hmm. around loneliness. I would also say certainly when it comes to, um, you know, reading, uh, whether it be a QR code or a website, again, like the emails, it's a lot more difficult and we can't see pop-ups, right? So I have an ad blocker on my computer. I have a virus checker, but even then you get a lot of pop-ups and you don't know, okay, should I, should I close this? What is this pop-up? So those are really difficult. And I would say my one strategy is 
is I don't answer my phone unless the number's in my contacts. This mm -hmm. has led absolutely to some missed calls, but you know what? That's why I have voicemail. So if I have missed that call, someone will leave a message, I'll call them back. Um, and then I'll verify at that point. So it's sort of a little bit of a, a tricky balance. And I think the last thing I would say is when in doubt, check it out. So if you're not sure, just do that extra bit of research to figure out who exactly is contacting you. There we go. We, we have a, com uh, a compelling conversation and a catchy catchphrase at the end of it. Elizabeth, thank you so much for not You're only welcome. filling in all week, but uh, jumping on the news panel today. Uh, have yourself a wonderful weekend and we'll see you again on Monday. See you as well. See you Monday. And uh, Nisreen, thank you so much for, for chiming in. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. You too. And Ramya, I'm not going to wish you a happy weekend yet because you still need to tell me what's coming up on today's episode of Kelly and Ramya. Absolutely. So it's the Friday edition. Kelly and I are both there and we're talking about AI starting to outperform meteorologists. John Beeler caught wind of this story and he's going to tell us more. Uh, also, the 110th Grey Cup is taking place in Hamilton this weekend and we're going to talk more about it on our sports update with Brock Richardson. Plus, we have gardening with Susan Kearney and she brings up different tools every week. Today, we're talking about watering tools that can help us with our plants, especially now that we're kind of moving into indoors for the rest of the little while um we want to talk about what we can do to take care of our indoor plants sounds like a great friday edition of the show ramia thank you have yourself a wonderful weekend you too alex and that was ramia muthan who co-hosts kelly and ramia which airs 2 p.m eastern on ami tv coming up after the break there have been a number of books recently that have won literary awards. Karen McKay from the Center of Equitable Library Access gives you the latest news in the world of literature. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. It's been a busy time in the literary world, as many awards have been handed out recently. Karen McKay from the Center of Equitable Library Access has the scoop on all the major awards and the winners. Hello, Karen. How are you doing today? I'm great. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. There's no better way to spend a, a Friday or start your weekend by talking about literature. So... There have been so many awards handed out recently. You wanted to take some time, highlight each of these authors and, and winning books. So each of the books that we're going to mention are all available in the SELA collection. So let's start with the Scotiabank Giller Prize winner. This week, Sarah Bernstein won for her novel, Study for Obedience. What can you tell me about this book? So this is a really interesting book. It's also been uh, shortlisted for the 2023 Booker Prize. So Sarah Bernstein's really getting a lot of attention in the in the recent past, and she's one of the new and upcoming writers. This is a really interesting story. So it's about a young woman who moves from the place of her birth to a remote northern country of her forebears, so to her ancestors, and she's going to become the housekeeper to her brother, whose wife has recently left him, and he's quite ill. 
So soon after her arrival, uh, there's a series of inexplicable events that occurs in the in the town. There's um, a demise of a ewe and her nearly born lamb. There's a local dog's phantom pregnancy. There's a collective bovine hysteria, so some uh, issues with the the local cows. And then there's also a potato blight. And and this is a remote community that she's in, and the the community members start to get a little suspicious. She starts to notice that all of these suspicions about incomers and newcomers are beginning to be directed towards her fairly intensely. And she's wondering what's happening sort of just outside the garden gate. Her brother begins to decline even more and she can feel the hostility growing towards her as she hears these rumblings in town. She wonders what might be happening outside. So one of the key themes of this book actually is xenophobia and how we can easily start to blame uh, strangers based on external factors or on our culture. It's also a novel about the traditional role of women and the dangers of imposing it. And it soon becomes apparent um, that her narration, the, the main character's narration, can't really be trusted. She might not be as innocent as she's uh, proclaiming. So the author, Sarah, uh, she confessed to reading a lot of Shirley Jackson. If you know her work, The Lottery, it's probably the most famous of her work. It's pretty sort of spooky. And so that feeling pervades Sarah um, Bernstein's novel as well. She explores a lot of complicity and power themes and the idea of displacement. It's a really uh, beautifully written book. It's rather unsettling, um, and she has an interesting writing style. So if you're interested to see what the new and upcoming writers of this generation are, are writing about, this is an excellent book to pick up. Very good. So uh, next we move on to the Governor General's Literary Award. So Anuja, uh, Anuja Varghese received the Governor General's Award for fiction for her book, Crystallis. Yeah, so this is a debut collection of short stories. She actually is a writing instructor from the University of Guelph, which is my alma mater, so I had to throw that in there. <laughs> um, and this book, is, <laughs> this book has also been shortlisted for the Writers' Trust um, of Canada's Dane Ogilvy Prize for LGBTQ emerging writers, and that one's going to be announced early next week. So again, another up-and-coming writer. So as I said, this is a collection of um, short stories. Her work's been featured in short story collections um, and in in magazines and that sort of thing in the past, but this is her own collection. And it's really a genre-bending collection of stories. It's about transformation. It's about belonging. Um, it's particular to the, the role of women of color and how the intersectionality with queerness and family and community really impact these women. It's a, a theme that we see a lot uh, from writers from various diasporas that are trying to, to communicate how complex it is to, to move through the world with all these different identities. So some of the stories are quite um, chilling in places. They're quite poignant. They really blur the lines between the real world and the worlds beyond, which I think is one of the appeals for this, this author. Um, she is fearless in terms of investigating and, and delving into the intersectionality of sexuality, uh, cultural expectation themes, uh, community. And the the uh, stories are a little bit odd in places, but really enjoyable. There's a story about a crumbling marriage um, that, that is saved through divine intervention. There's a story about a woman who dies in her dreams over and over again until she finds salvation. And there's a story about a, a teen misfit who sort of engages with the darkness lurking just outside her suburban home. So a really wide collection of stories, a really interesting collection to pick up. Highly recommend this one. And the next uh, uh, literary award is the First Nations Community Reads Award. So. 
Uh, Kyle Myclear won the Governor General Award for nonfiction for her book, Unearthing a Story of Tangled Love and Family Secrets. What can you tell me about this one? So this is a really beautiful, rather quiet memoir. It's about a, a family secret that's revealed by DNA. The, the author learns that her father is actually not her biological father. And so we get to see sort of the unraveling of her sense of identity over the period of time as she explores that. She um, becomes sort of a detective in her own life and she's trying to put together the story of her father and while that's happening she's taking comfort in gardening which connects her with her mother whose past is becoming increasingly complicated as she understands the role her father played in her life so uh, there's a lot of big picture questions about what is kinship what does it mean to be a family she also writes about her experience of being half japanese she's not fluent in japanese but she's very um uh, protective of the culture and she also understands that the fact that she doesn't speak Japanese really places a rift between her and her mother. The book is at times suspenseful as she's sort of uncovering her past but it's really more of a thoughtful reflection on race and lineage and our cultural fixation on um, what she calls recreational genetics like learning more about ourselves from a recreational standpoint rather than maybe an introspective one. Uh, there's lots about grief and loyalty and the relationship between mothers and daughters. I really loved the sort of poetic nature of this book. I think it's a beautifully written book. Great. And another uh, selection from the First Nations Community Read, this was a selected title, My Indian Summer by Kakwi no Ka Na Sum. I, I, hopefully I, I got that name somewhat uh, correct. I apologize if I didn't. Uh, what can you tell me about this novel? I practiced that name quite a bit. I'm not sure I would have done any better. So congrats to you for that. So this is, um, a, this is a memoir about um, Hunter Frank in the summer of 1979, and his mother has left. Uh, she only comes back to collect welfare checks, and she leaves her three kids, her half-breed kids, as she calls them, to fend for themselves. So uh, Frank's older sister escapes from their northern BC town, and his brother goes on to fight uh, forest fires. And Hunter's really left on his own as a young teen, and he's got occasional care coming from some elders in his community, but he gets himself into a little bit of trouble as a, a young entrepreneur. So he collects empty bottles from parties to turn into cash, but he ends up getting uh, mixed up with a man from his, a young man from his town named Troy, who's a drug dealer. And the drug deals kind of go awry and Hunter's caught up in the, the mix of it. This book explores family, which is something that we've talked about a little bit in some of these other books, uh, but also that family doesn't always mean blood and doesn't all and blood doesn't always mean family. Hunter's only 12 years old and he's really learning about his place in the world. He wants to escape his British Columbia town and follow his sister, but he is... Um, you know, he's stymied by his age and by lack of money. It's a, it's a story about a journey into understanding that all villains are not uh, only villains, sometimes they're victims, and that reconciliation may not be possible, but survival is. Uh, a really interesting book to pick up to understand the Indigenous experience. Absolutely. We have one more that you wanted to highlight, and we'll have to be a bit quicker, about a minute on this one. This is for the Hugo Award for Science Fiction, and T. Uh, Kingfisher received it for her book, Nettle and Bone. What can you tell me about this one? 
So this was announced October 21st, 2023. Um, it's a science fiction best novel. And T. Fish Kingfisher is a, a pen name for Ursula Vernon. So folks can look up her writing as well. Um, this book, I'll, I'll just read you the, the um, sort of description because it's pretty interesting. Uh, After years of seeing her sister suffer at the hands of an abusive prince, the shy covenant-raised third-born daughter has finally realized that no one is coming to their rescue, no one except for herself. And so she's seeking power from a grave rich witch and she's offered tools to kill a prince if she can complete these three impossible tasks. But as the way of tales and princesses and witches and daughters, the impossible is only beginning. So she goes on this quest to join the grave witch and she finds a reluctant fairy godmother, a strapping former knight and a chicken possessed by a demon. So these books are uh, lots of fun, but they do delve into some deeper themes around things like family and community and what you'll do for, for love and what you'll do uh, to realize your sense of self. So an excellent book. We have a number of the Hugo Award books in our collection as well, and you can find more of those on our awards page if science fiction is something that you like to read. Absolutely. Karen, thank you so much for taking the time, to, uh, just highlighting all these great award winners. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. Thank you. You as well. Okay, that was Karen McKay, the Communications Manager for the Center for Equitable Library Access. That's it for the show. That's it for the week. Before we say goodbye, I just wanted to say thank you to a couple people during this week. First off, a big thanks to Elizabeth Moeller for stepping in as co-host this week and stepping on the news panel. Michelle McQuig was here for the news panel. You just heard from Karen McKay, along with some of the people behind the scenes, including Caitlin Robinson, Jordan Musgrave, Matt McGurk and Odin as part of our overall coverage for the Odin conference that you heard all throughout this week. And you will hear some more on Tuesday. So be sure to tune in on Monday. Enjoy your weekend. That's it for the show. I'm Alex Smythe. For now, we're going to roll those credits and thank everyone else who's involved with the show. Have a great weekend. producer Alex Smythe, sports reporter Brock Richardson, contributors Rami Amuthan and Nazreen Abdel-Majid, senior show producer Andrika Delanerol, visual producer Bruce McLarion, producers Paul Daniel, Marianne Dion jones production assistant Kingsley Juco, director Anastasia Spalding-Stenhouse, control room operators Daniel Panamondo, Eliza Rocco, Parker Oxtoby. Manager of Operations, Kyle Harper. Manager of Live Production, Paula Deneen. Director of Content Development, Kara Nye. Vice President of Programming, John Melville. President and CEO, David Arrington. Give us your feedback, 1-866-509-4545. Copyright 2023, Accessible Media, Inc. NAMI Original Production. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.